1989, After Humanity, written and narrated by Paul Inman. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Paul Inman SC. Chapter 10, The Sun Cross, August 1980. James ran through the double doors of the R&D lab, almost knocking over Doris as he sprinted toward the table with the stack of pages from the dot matrix printout and the hand-filled composition notebooks. Jake McKenzie was sitting at his computer in the small enclosed workspace just outside of the common area. Hey Jim, he said. I'm glad you're back. I finished the Caesar cipher program that can detangle that mess of letters. Doris ran through a few lines, but nothing seems to make much sense. While she's been working on that, I also rewrote a few lines of code for the bomb program. I should have it updated within the hour. James Hensley ignored the man. Instead, he focused his attention on the notebook with Genocchi's hand-drawn symbols. He opened the first page and studied the very first symbol. It was rounded like a piece of pie or a triangle with one curved edge. Simone burst into the lab in an eerily similar fashion as her young friend had done only moments ago. He was still studying the symbol as she came through the doors. Jim, what the hell, man? She screeched. Doris and Jake looked up from their work. Seriously, talk to me. James looked up from the notebook. Where is this symbol? Simone stared at him for a long moment, still breathing hard. Her face was red from running downstairs, but she pulled in a long breath to steady herself. She sighed as she exhaled. Let me see it, she spoke, reaching out for the notebook. He spun it around, placing the book in her outstretched hand, and pointed. There, this one. Where is it in the printout? He asked again. She looked at the rounded triangle thing and shook her head. I'm not completely sure. Dr. J worked on this part. She scanned the page, trying to figure out his methodology. I'd guess this number, she pointed to a small number three just below and to the right of the symbol, is the page number where that symbol appears. Show me. James took the notebook back from Simone as she turned to look through the dot matrix printout. Sure enough, on the third page of the stack was the curved edge triangle in the top left corner of the page. Here it is, Simone said. She turned to find that James wasn't looking at her or the printout, but instead he was flipping through the pages of the notebook. Hello? She was beginning to get annoyed by his seemingly scattered brain. Now what are you doing? James stopped flipping the pages a second later, dropped the notebook on the desk, and pointed. What do you see? he asked. I don't want to play this game. Just look, he demanded. She looked into his eyes. There was a fire there, something that she'd only seen in her uncle's eyes before, when he was on to something big. She didn't respond, but she did look down to where he was pointing. Drawn in the notebook was another symbol. It was a triangle with one curved edge, almost exactly like the previous symbol, but a mirror image. It looks the same, she said to James as she looked back into his blazing eyes. Almost, but not quite, he responded, looking at the small numbers written below and to the right of the symbol. It looks like it's on page 42. Simone dug through the pages, counting under her breath as she did, and stopped on page 42. There, in the top right corner of the printout, was the symbol, just as Genocchi had drawn it. By this point, Jake and Doris had gathered around the two younger people. 
What are you getting at? Jake asked. Is this a new code that needs breaking? Sort of, James said. The doors behind them opened again as Dr. Tadashi Janochi came back into the R&D labs. Everyone turned to look at him, except James, who was still looking at the markings in the notebook and the matching one on page 42 of the printout. You knew, James said without looking up. You knew there was a pattern here. The others turned their gaze towards James as he spoke. Why didn't you say anything earlier? I did not yet understand there was a pattern. I knew some symbols were similar, but I have not pieced together why. Dr. Genochi. Doris stopped her accusation mid-thought, not able to find the right words to continue, and feeling embarrassed at her insubordination. I did nothing wrong, Genochi countered. Of course I would have brought this to light if I continued to have trouble understanding. It seems someone has beaten me to a conclusion. Jim? Jake motioned for the young man to continue. He nodded. Let's tear off page 3 and 42 from the stack and go ahead and number all the pages if they aren't yet. Doris grabbed a pen off the table and handed it to Simone, who was already tearing the perforations, separating pages 2 from 3 and 3 from 4. After she finished, she handed James the page and began working on page 42. While she worked, James began to explain what he'd discovered. Thanks, Simone. He took the page and placed it on the table, picking up the notebook again as he continued. This symbol, he turned the notebook and pointed to the mirrored, curved-edged triangle, has a related symbol here. He flipped back to page one of the notebook and pointed out the original curved-edged triangle. Next, James picked up page three of the printout and showed everyone the same symbol on the corner of the page. Simone handed the freshly removed page 42 to James. Thanks. Here's the mirrored image. He took the page and held it up as well. When I put them side by side, he rearranged the pages to line up the symbols. They create a new symbol. The four onlookers watched as James lined up both curved edge triangles, creating a half circle. The straight edges of the two triangles formed one line down the center, splitting the half circle, and one across the top, giving it the vague appearance of a bowl shape. I'm willing to bet, James continued, that there are two more shapes just like this that will complete the circle. Each person on the Project Murado team successively turned toward Dr. Tadashi Jinochi. I didn't know. Jinochi's tone suggested an attempt to avoid the oncoming criticism. I swear, I couldn't have known this. James pushed forward, bringing everyone's attention back to the topic at hand. Let's see that Caesar cipher. Doris retrieved the handwritten page from the desk and passed it to the young man. If I'm right, James trailed off as he ran through the cipher, replacing the scrambled proxy letters with the ones from the shifted alphabet. He had placed both pages 3 and 42 on the table, still paired in a way that the triangular symbols were combined into the half circle, and he also underlined the jumbled words at the end of the first line of page 3 and the beginning of the first line of page 42. Essentially, this new configuration created one large line of jumbled text. Jake McKenzie noticed a pattern right away. Look, he said to no one in particular, the code continues on the next page. James continued to work at decoding the words, but responded to McKenzie's statement. Actually, it doesn't, but it sort of does, I think. Simone shook her head in confusion. What? Give me a second, and I'll show you. James absently responded. 
He carried on his work, replacing letters until he finished a small portion that connected the first line across each of the pages. When he finished, James stepped back and all five of the people looked down at his work. On page three, the decoded portion read, Put underscore line, open parentheses, open quotations. Can you, on page 42, it continued, save humanity, close quotations, ampersand, open quotations, question mark, close quotations, close parentheses, semicolon. What's that mean? Simone asked. She read it out loud. Put line? Can you save humanity? Wait, Genochi said, turning to face Jake McKenzie. Yeah, Jake McKenzie breathed. This looks like coding. But we decoded it, Simone replied. No, Jake said. Computer coding. But I don't understand. It's not exactly like coding. None that I know of. He looked at Dr. Genochi. This isn't that new type of C coding, is it? C with classrooms or something like that? Classes. Genochi rubbed his mouth as his brain spun. I don't think so. Something's off here. We need those other two pages, Jake said. Way ahead of you, Doris replied. She was holding the symbol-filled notebook, shuffling through the pages. I found one that looks like it could be the top right part of the circle. It should be page 56. Simone quickly flipped through the next section in the stack of pages printed by the dot matrix printer. Got it, she said, and tore the page out of the group. Wait, Dr. J, is this the same symbol? Doris pointed to the crude drawing in the notebook. Genochi stepped around Mackenzie, leaned in to look where Doris was pointing, and spoke. Yes, I was getting tired when I drew it, but it is the same. Page 73, Simone. Okay, Doc. She flipped through the stack, quickly finding the correct page, and separated it from the rest. James took both of the pages from her and placed them in the correct position with the original two. He lined up the symbols on the edges of each paper. The four curved edges in the four corners of the pages created a circle. Inside of that circle, the straight edges of the triangles now created a T-shape that resembled the crosshairs in a rifle scope, giving the symbol a new meaning. I've seen this before, Simone said. I think we learned about it in history class, Jim. It's called the Sun Cross, Jake said. It represents the sun, the earth, and even power for some people. That's right, James nodded. We learned that this symbol dates back a long time. It's been found in cave paintings, and it's even used by NASA as an astronomical symbol to represent the earth in their symbols of the solar system. Genochi looked closely, then spoke slowly and deliberately. Germany used a broken version of this as a representation of their evil. He sighed heavily as he shook his head. After a moment, he pressed forward. What can we make of this? James proposed that these pages are connected, Jake began. Now, I think we feed these letter combinations into the Caesar cipher program I wrote and find out what the rest of it says. It may not be that easy, James started. Maybe not, Jake continued. But it's a starting point, and that's more than we had at the beginning of the day. Doris took on the task of inputting the letters into the computer program that Jake McKenzie had written. She sat down at his workstation terminal with the four printout pages and methodically typed everything she'd recognized as a part of the coded message. 
There were times she'd encounter entire sections that were written in different languages, sometimes Cyrillic and sometimes the Greek alphabet. At first, she skipped these sections. However, after Doris encountered her third bit of Greek text on the first page, she'd excused herself down the block to the San Diego Central Library so she could check out books with basic letter translations. Doris hurried back with her new reading material and diligently continued her work. She was careful to double-check each letter cluster as she typed, fixing any mistakes that might inadvertently slip through, and attempted to keep herself as organized as possible. Three books lay open in the workstation, along with the four pages, as she pushed into the late afternoon. James and Simone took on the task of reorganizing the rest of the original printout. James began with the first symbol that Genocchi had drawn on the first page of the notebook. Together, they slowly worked their way through the different partial symbols, connecting them to create a new layout of printed pages. The task was more complex than it had originally seemed. There were different partial symbols in all corners of each page, signifying that every page was likely connected to three others. The puzzle that was being pieced together was massive. It would take a long time to reorganize the 123-page printout into something they all hoped would be the correct order. Jake McKenzie continued his work writing the program Mimicking the Bomb Machine, adapted by Turing during World War II. He'd copied his initial work, not much more than a few lines of code, onto a floppy disk and moved over to Genocchi's workstation to use his terminal. It wasn't quite as fast as McKenzie's, but it was the second-best terminal in the R&D lab. Over the next few hours, he wrote a simple code that would reroute any amount of jumbled letters punched into the program, turning the nonsense words into discernible English. The catch, James had told McKenzie, was to make sure that the virtual rotors were in the neutral position, but still able to be adjusted, in case they came across a more complex version of the Enigma machine's coding. He made these parts of the program variables easily adjustable, with only a few keystrokes. In the meantime, Genocchi went back to work on the box that caused all the confusion. With a few turns of a flathead screwdriver, he removed the outer casing. It was replaced after the initial malfunction to protect the sensitive boards and circuits inside of the machine. Although, a malfunction was less likely as each new discovery was pinned down. The information transmitted to the dot matrix was definitely purposeful. Genocchi wanted to find out what, if anything, had triggered this informational overload. He retraced his steps from the initial inspection. The stopgap had been drilled to stop spiderwebbing on the motherboard. Everything looked okay there. He followed his hand-drawn schematic, making notes on his yellow legal pad, just as he had done before. He went back through each step of his repair, noting that the jumper wires were still intact and the connections appeared to be sound. The liquid flux he'd applied was just the right amount, albeit a bit sloppy. Haste makes waste, stumbled through the back of his mind. He worked backward until he came to some of his first notes and sketches in his schematics. The machine looked to be in peak condition, other than the melting of the board that he'd repaired just before the printing anomaly. Genocchi removed the board and placed it on his workbench. Jake McKenzie was on the opposite side of the small workstation, pounding away on the keyboard of Genocchi's terminal. Genocchi ignored the sounds. He pulled the magnifying light over the melted section of the board in hopes of seeing something that he'd missed in his initial inspections. 
The circuit board wasn't overly complex, with only a few connections, resistors, and capacitors making up the bulk of the tiny device. The melted section, as Genochi noted before, was largely just plastic board, with no viable damage to the functional parts of the system. He sighed, moved the magnifier closer, and continued his inspection. Hey guys, Doris called from Mackenzie's workstation. You're going to want to see this. Mackenzie and Genochi exchanged a look as they both moved to see what the commotion was about. The two men came out of the workstation and hurried into the common area of the lab. As they tried to rush through, Simone jumped in front of them and stopped them dead in their tracks. Whoa, she said, bouncing the men off each other as they tried not to slam into her. You'll have to go around, guys. Simone pointed to the ground where a patchwork tapestry of loose pages lay on the open tile floor. She and James had spread the 9.5 inch by 11 inch pages across the tile as they'd matched the partial symbols to one another. There were around 60 loose pages covering a sporadic chunk of the highly traveled thoroughfare, and several more partial matches were strewn across the tables in the common area. Doris peeked her head out of the workstation. Are you guys... Wow. She noticed the giant puzzle of pages spread across the floor. It's going to take a while to decode all that. That's an understatement, James said to himself, loud enough for everyone to hear. Doris shifted back to her original thought process. Are you guys coming or what? Dr. Genochi and Jake McKenzie hesitated and glanced at the floor. Simone picked up on the subtle cue and took the lead. She stepped around the edge of most of the pages, taking care not to create a wind wake that would blow the papers around. James motioned for the other men to follow, and he stepped in line behind them. Twenty seconds later, they were entering Jake's workstation, where Doris had temporarily set up shop. There's nothing on the screen, Doris. What are we supposed to be looking at? Jake lamented as soon as everyone was cramped into the small space. Be patient, Mr. McKenzie, Genoshi replied. He turned his attention to Doris. What do you want to show us, Doris? Thank you, Doctor, Doris began. And thank you, Jake, for writing such a user-friendly program. She nodded in the direction of her colleague. I finished importing all the text from the four pages. Most of it still reads like nonsense to me, because I'm not a programmer. Maybe you and Dr. J can figure it out, Jake. But there is a section that I wanted to share with you all. I believe it's important. You can read basic programming language, Doris, Jake interjected. Not this stuff, she shook her head. I can't make heads or tails of it. Tell us what you know, James said. I think it's best if I show you. Doris turned to the monitor, flipped the power switch in the back, and stood back as the tubes warmed up. The modified Apple II was a dual floppy terminal with one drive dedicated to running the Caesar Cipher program. The screen hummed to life and slowly revealed its neon green cursor flashing in the bottom left-hand corner. Doris recalled the last command by typing the simplified command, decode.exe. The computer beeped in word as the processor refined its data. After a few seconds, a stream of commands ran down the screen in a neon green waterfall of information. They watched the screen fill and refill. What is that? Jake rhetorically asked. That code can't be right. That's what I said when I saw it, Doris responded. That's not what I want you to see. Keep watching. The screen stopped abruptly, leaving only the blinking cursor. What happened? James was left standing with his mouth agape 
his question lost to the ether with what he saw next. Everyone was speechless. The blinking green cursor was replaced with the computerized shape of a face. The movements were clunky, inhuman, caricatures of expression, but when paired with the voice coming from the machine, they did the trick. For step three, you must build a housing for this device to function optimally, the feminine, disembodied, mechanical voice instructed. This housing will not only be for protection for the delicate components, but it will also act as camouflage for the device. The flickering green face morphed to create another image while the computerized voice continued to speak. James was the first to recognize this new image, but Dr. Ginocchi asked the questions that everyone was thinking. How is this possible? What is happening here? I don't know, but that looks like an arcade game, James replied. You've been listening to 1989, After Humanity, written and narrated by Paul Inman. Follow Aubrey and Drake on Twitter at TMC Restores, and follow me at Paul Inman SC. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and anywhere podcasts are available. It really helps. Email 1989afterhumanity at gmail.com with any feedback. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to co-fi.com slash Paul Inman. That's ko-fi.com slash Paul Inman.